Stephen Esposito is the president of Yellowstone Wealth Management in Lake Forest. Happy New Year, Stephen. How are you? Hi, John. Happy New Year to you, too. We're good. Yeah, Looking glad. forward to the new year. Are you? What's uh, are yeah. you? Are you? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. Well, uh, 2023 turned out to be not such a bad year, right? No, not at all. Um, it was it was a wonderful year. I would hope every year is like that uh, going forward. I think it'll be a good year this year. But you know, what a lot of people don't know, or they know, but don't realize, if you go back two years um, to December, the end of uh, 21. The actual market itself in that two-year period didn't do, you know, did basically flat, give or take a few percentage points. And if you own treasuries or utilities, anything like that, you had a bad two years. Yeah. So, you know, it was a good year, but if you go back two years, it's, you know, it's it's uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other. But going forward, I guess what we're here to talk about, right? Well, uh, I, we, yes, but uh, just about 2023, it was really a bad half year and a good half year, right? Yeah, I mean, it started out, if you remember the banking crisis, and uh, that we talked about that then. I just thought that was a great buying opportunity for a lot of them. And uh, as the market, the talk was for, what, a year and a half that we were going to see a recession. And all the predictions of doom and gloom just never came true. And the market then realized that as we head into the fourth quarter and started to react accordingly. Um, and it surprised a lot of money managers, a lot of the best on the street. And uh, it was it was wonderful. I, I We had a great year. And we're looking forward to another one this year. I think yeah. you'll you'll get another more further tailwind in an election year. Oh, is that it? Not maybe action by the Fed, but you're optimistic generally, uh, generally speaking, about 24. Huh? Yeah, across the board, I think the Fed will drop rates. So we, we've talked about it. I thought all along they'll probably do it, maybe by the beginning of the second quarter, and that's what the consensus is now. Somewhere in there, I still think between then and election time, you you will probably see maybe a 4% Fed funds rate, give or take a quarter point. Uh, mortgage rates should come down. You know, election years, especially for an incumbent, are almost always an up year, no matter what political party is in. And we're, you know, the economy has, the inflation is, is weakened. And more importantly, what you're seeing now is a broadening out of the market, which I really like. Uh, not just seven stocks out of 500, but you're seeing a broad-based rally as the market, uh, which is what it did in 99, in 2000, after the dot-com bubble. So I think that'll have that's healthy for the market. So all those things combined, you know, it looks like a good year, at least right now, unless, God forbid, something comes out of left field that would derail all of it. But generally speaking, it should be a good year. What does that say then about f- fixed investments, about um, CDs or uh, Treasury bills, things like that? I mean, would smart money go into the market and continue to ride this wave or should you lock in four or five percent? Well, yeah, I mean, you look at it this way, 5% money markets are keeping money out of the financial markets because it's a good place to park your money right now. That's going to come down. So you may want to do that. What we're doing here is we've been in money markets all along. We haven't owned any bonds or preferred utilities for a while. I was afraid with rates being that low that when rates go up, it's going to hurt. So we didn't participate in that at all. So we're sitting on a lot of cash and equities. And uh, what I look for is dividend paying equities so I can have the best of both worlds. So um, we'll deploy more capital as we go into the marketplace. But right now we're sitting on a lot of financials, consumer cyclicals, things that would benefit from falling interest rates and a rising you know, economy, I think, for the consumer yeah. uh, broadening out. And those stocks are just so cheap, John, with single-digit multiples and nice dividends that I just I couldn't resist them all year. So thank God it's paying off now. And will that continue to? I mean, you just mentioned the areas, but just talk a little bit more about that. Where 
would somebody shift their money to then? Well, we've been buying banks ever since the banking crisis. Just continue to add to those positions, regionals, large, and they're starting to move. They've been moving here from the fourth quarter, and I think it'll continue. We've been buying a lot of pharmaceuticals. They had a horrible year, so we bought a lot of those in the fourth quarter is where we're going. And I do think the consumer in general, where it would be restaurants. I think it's an area of the market um, that you got to look at with the, uh, the weight loss drug is what nobody's talking about, at least I haven't heard it, is look at the apparel space. As I think there was 9 million prescriptions written recently for this new weight loss drug. And if someone drops 20, 30, 40 pounds, <laughs> really? they're going to need clothes. Wow. And uh, nobody's talking about that. And not only do they need them, and if you're talking an entire wardrobe, but they want to. They want to show off the new them. So that's an area nobody's, I've heard, talk about a real benefactor from this weight loss drug. And I have some friends who are on it, and it's amazing what it's done for them. So there's areas there that I would look at. I just think there's a lot of cheap stocks. Uh, the autos, I'm not going to say walking away from electric vehicles, but it doesn't seem to be their focus. I think that's a good thing uh, for the traditional automakers because they're losing money every day. And if they can stop the bleeding there and make it on the other side, then I think that makes those stocks cheap. So there's a whole bunch to look at, and I do think, it, I do think it'll be a very good year. Just thinking of the athleisure where makers out there none come to mind i mean some of them do but um if i were going to buy single stocks is there a etf what do they call those a electronic uh, an etf a retail, retail etf yeah but they're not really the way i would look at them i mean just you know wherever you buy your clothes look at the stores if they're publicly traded um and those companies that focus on that people going back to work people more leisure but i've had friends who've dropped 30 40 pounds and they're out buying brand new wardrobes and again they're excited <laughs> about it I mean, they're really excited, and, yeah. and you're not talking one or two pair of pants. So it goes from shoes to coats, you name it. So that could be an area that will do well going forward, and, um, and, and they're cheap. So it is what it is. Stephen Esposito is the president of Yellowstone Wealth Management in Lake Forest. Happy New Year, Stephen. I hope all of, our, uh, all of these dreams come true. It sounds good. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. Wintrust Business Lunch. Uh, let's visit with our friend Philip Weiss, president of Cypharth at Work. Philip, there are some buzzwords to pay attention to or some new phrases. Is that what you're thinking about? It is what we're thinking about, John. Uh, and it's uh, sort of a interesting warning for 2024 for business owners and managers alike. Uh, we're seeing a, an increase in legal cases based specifically on certain language that companies or their managers use when they don't hire somebody or perhaps demote them uh, or perhaps fire them. Uh, there was a case, in fact, just last week that the Federal Employment Agency, the EEOC, announced it had uh, settled uh, so a company could avoid uh, an actual trial. And in that case, the company's recruiter, which is not even an employee, it was a third-party recruiter, John, used terms like, overqualified, which is one of these buzzwords the agencies look for, and too senior, meaning excessively senior, uh, as a part of the rationale for why an individual was not seriously considered for a sales rep position at a medical device company. So it's interesting that the words matter, and they can be highlighted by agencies, both federal and state, when they decide to sue. Is it illegal to not hire somebody for a sales job because they're too old? Because in your estimation, you don't want an older person in that position? Well, um, the, the short answer is 
It certainly can be. I mean, the, the federal law talks about age 40. There are state and local laws that have all different age thresholds. And if someone, John, is actually fully qualified for the job, right. more importantly, most qualified, and you have made age the issue or made it clearly a rationale for why you didn't give them the opportunity, you could be in legal hot water. So you got to get to a place where you're focusing on other elements, such as the skills and why you don't think they really have the right skills or approach for the job. Okay, so you shouldn't not hire somebody. Maybe you even are breaking the law if you do because of their age. So then in the evaluation, they say things like, well, they're too senior or they're overqualified, wink, wink. And that language, which reflects maybe an illegal act, is what gets you in trouble. We're talking about the language here, right? That is entirely right. And what the agencies call this, when they look at it, is is basically an inference or uh, a euphemism for something like age. And frankly, John, to your point, it could be disability. Uh, We've seen companies come to us because their managers were saying, hey, the the guy just didn't have the stamina. And in fact, they should have simply said, here are the number of widgets he needs to produce a day. And he was producing half that number of widgets or the equivalent lack of productivity. So there's many ways to evaluate someone's ability and qualifications and success but some terms themselves raise the specter of legal risk almost immediately. Yeah, but what's the call to action here then? Change the language or change the hiring? Are, are, well, is, go ahead. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a little bit of both. I mean, when you, when you train your people, they have to know what language to avoid. And one great way of doing that is to know what to use instead. And a good job description that lays out the skill categories as opposed to the personal characteristics of yeah. the individual yeah. is the best place to start. So you've got the, you got the language. It's in the job description. You don't want to default to your personal impressions of the individual and their characteristics. So then what are the, uh, what suggestions do you have for employers then? Yeah, well, I, I would say you look at it from three different perspectives. Obviously, train your own people. Have them go through mock interview or performance evaluation exercises so you can be sure or your lawyer or your third-party HR consultant can be sure they know what to say and what to avoid. And get people to look back at those job descriptions, make sure those descriptions are updated. That'd be number two. And thirdly, based on this recent case, it's not just your own employees. If you're using a recruiting agency to bring people in, ask them, who is training your people? Are they aware of the latest non-discrimination best practices, and how did they get hold of that information? So it's about your own team, and it's about other companies that do the work on your behalf because they can create your liability even if you don't. I'm just thinking about the potential employees out there who maybe through the pandemic are re-entering the workforce or for whatever reason are north of, pick a number, 50, 55, They feel like they can sell these pharmaceuticals or these widgets on the street to hospitals and businesses, and they can't get the job. And I'm wondering if, in fact, they could be as effective as a younger person, either because the younger person is more energetic or maybe because there's a bias built into younger people. I just wonder how viable the older employees are. That's not a a loaded question. I I don't know. I have no idea what the world is like out there. 
Yeah, well, I think that you're hitting on the kind of evaluation a lot of companies are making right now. And from the applicant's perspective, they should understand just what you said, which is they may have had five years as a sales manager on these pharma products. But when they're in the interview trying to start up somewhere else because perhaps they lost their job or they're re-entering the workforce, they got to be absolutely clear. I was a sales manager. I didn't actually sell your product. I want to learn about your product inside out. So I am more than happy to start at that lower level of sales rep and kill the numbers, make every deal I can, and prove that I can be a real go-getter for you. And then, of course, I'd love to move up back into that manager role. But show your commitment at whatever level, at whatever position is open to you. Because like you're saying, John, they actually have industry knowledge and experience that cannot be replaced. Well, what's it like out there, Philip, for people of a certain age? And what is that age? Yeah, so it really depends on the industry, as you might imagine. And uh, it, it also depends on the skills you're, you're, you're looking for or you're looking to prove you have. Because clearly, if you're looking at tech, social media, media in general, um, certain groups who have more familiarity with that field will have an advantage. But a lot of companies are seeing great success and value in not eliminating or disregarding any age group. Because people who have worked for a few decades have certain levels of not only industry and uh, environment experience, but they've got an accountability that they can share with people on their teams who might be two or three decades younger. So you get this mentoring benefit by pairing people up who might be 25 and 65 that you would never have managed as a benefit. So think holistically about who you're bringing in and don't discount people because they seem overqualified because they just might be the best qualified for the job. You know, a movie I want you to see is Blackberry. Have you seen the movie Blackberry, Philip? I have, n- I have not, but I've heard about it from a number of people, so now it's on my list since you just mentioned it. Maybe you and I will get your movie review of it, but it's the uh, sort of biography of the company BlackBerry. Remember, Barack Obama always had one in his hand. He couldn't put it down, and they called it Crackberry. But that company <laughs> failed, and it's the story of why that company failed. And they made... Um, um, a lot of mistakes. They were very successful. Maybe it was inevitable that Apple was going to own that space and the BlackBerry was doomed because of the technology itself, the elevated buttons that you would click rather than the screen that you would touch. Maybe that was its you know, demise, but it, it's, it's a great movie and it's hard to watch because it was so successful, but ultimately doomed. And in part because of the hubris, because of the obnoxiousness of the co-CEO. So there's sort of my little summary for you, Philip. I, I, that's your assignment. In the next month, I want you to watch it. Well, that, that's, uh, that's more than an enjoyable assignment. So I'll take that homework, and, I, and I'll be happy to follow up. And, and by the way, that's a great example of where someone with more experience may have made all the difference, because in tech, you get a perspective and a certain uh, sense of responsibility and sober approach to business that some of these tech startups don't always have. So it's a, even having not seen the film, it's a great reference point. That is one of the problems. The guy that then ends up being the co-CEO didn't know code, didn't even know some of the things they were talking about. He could sell, hmm. but he was out of his element. So you and I will talk down the road. It's always nice to visit with you, Philip. Thank you, sir. 
It's a pleasure, and Happy New Year, John. Happy New Year. This is John Williams. Thanks for dialing in. And now let's get the sort of summary of the last and the next one from Jim Dalkey, National Editor at American, you know. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, John. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, what's the prognosis? Um, more IPO money uh, going to come into Chicago this year? You know, that's something we're definitely keeping an eye on. So, you know, obviously, beginning of the year, great time to, to look ahead, what to expect for uh, the startup and tech sector in 2024. And um, a, a group called PitchBook, uh, which really very closely tracks all things startup, venture capital, tech sector data. Um, it's not a report kind of looking at the year and what they're expecting. And, you know, one thing is a potential return to IPOs, like you mentioned. Um, you know, the, the IPO window uh, remained firmly closed really for, for much of 2023. There were very few public offerings throughout the tech sector. Um, and, and just to kind of put that into perspective, if you look at VC exit value, so that's a, a metric that looks at both uh, public offerings as well as startups that got acquired. Um, there was only $51 billion of exit value last year. Compare that to 2021 when there was almost $800 billion in exit value, really kind of showing you just how firmly closed that IPO window was last year. Um, but there are some positive signs that that window is opening or opening soon, um, which is going to give those, those startups and those venture capital backers some incentive to take the plunge here. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve hasn't raised rates since July. Inflation has slowed, and the S&P 500 is up about 20 22% as of the end of uh, the last year. So if inflation continues cooling and rates can come down, it could create a less risky environment for these later stage startup investors who are ready to uh, see their startups take the IPO path. Um, so, you know, who's kind of poised, right, for this IPO breakout? Uh, you know, in 2024, there's a software startup called Service Titan, which is planning to go public reportedly earlier this year. And there's some other big uh, tech companies that people are probably familiar with, companies like Reddit, SeatGeek, StubHub, these are companies that are venture-backed and kind of primed uh, and ready to go public potentially as well if, the, if, if they see an opening here in the public markets. And so what that means is, you know, those venture capital backers um, and investors will get, you know, return on their investment. The limited partners and those venture funds will get a return and kind of the startup wheel keeps on spinning. So uh, PitchBook says there's about 75 or so startups that they've kind of tracked as potentially waiting to enter the public markets. And if we start to see a flood of IPOs, that's going to only benefit the, the entire startup sector overall. Why did they dry up last year? Yeah, it just was not a favorable market uh, to, to, to hit the public markets. It was not a favorable environment to go public last year. Uh, we saw some kind of ups and downs a little bit throughout the market. And um, you know, especially what, what we saw at the later stages was uh, a real difficult time securing funding. So often before you go public, you kind of need to raise that, yeah. you know, series D round of funding. And those startups just could not access the, that capital because those investors just were completely, you know, largely uh, completely on the sidelines. And so uh, really a hard time kind of getting over the finish line there to, to, do an IPO, but 2024 could be a different story. But is that angel investors who don't need to borrow money, or is Series D somehow pegged to interest rates and the ability to get money? Yeah, the later you go, the, the more interest rates are going to factor into that. Um, and, 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 you know, those investors kind of at those later stages were, you know, kind of really seeing a much different startup environment than they saw in 2021, late 2020, when rates were low and money was a little freer. Um, and so, you know, and, and also those startups at those later stages were also struggling. Uh, you know, the, it, it's not uncommon for startups 
not to make money throughout the <laughs> investing life cycle, but um, some of those businesses really did struggle. And we saw companies who were uh, unicorns, right? They were raising at billion dollar valuations, uh, you know, completely shut their doors last year. And that's another thing that PitchBook is kind of eyeing for, you know, potential predictions and what to look for in 2024 is um, really a, a slowdown in new, new unicorns or these companies that are valued at a billion dollars. We only had 44 new billion dollar startups in 2023. That's down from 195 last year and 360 in 2021. So PitchBook expects that number to continue to, to slow down, right? Um, especially as we see these startups at the later stages, uh, you know, if, if they're not able to raise that Series D, Series E round of funding or go public, um, they may have to close their doors altogether. We saw a Columbus startup called Olive shut down. We saw Convoy, a freight startup out of Seattle, shut down. There was a handful of those. Um, and they are expecting some continued hardships for a handful of companies in the beginning of this year as well. Yeah. And it's just kind of interesting to me that just as, as somebody who's not in that space, it would seem to me like if you had a good idea, it would therefore be viable. Or if you had a viable idea, it would therefore be successful. But I guess that's all not true if you can't get people to invest in it. I guess the point being, it wasn't um, a lack of good ideas. It was just a lack of money to make those ideas come to fruition. That's right. And I think, you know, kind of what we saw, too, in at late 2020, early 2021, and we've talked to, you know, to, you know, business professors and venture capitalists about this. I mean, there were just more businesses more startups than there needed to be. Uh, we saw more startups created kind of in the boom times of the, you know, of the pandemic um, than there was enough money to go around. And I think that one thing that we saw is that we did a little bit of a course correct in 2022 and 2023 where, um, you know, some of these startups were in the same category or some of these startups were kind of tackling the same industry and it just wasn't, um, you know, enough fundable businesses, right? So I think one thing that we saw is just a little bit of a thinning of the herd where, um, you know, it, it, you know the, the glass half full approach of that, right, is that like the, the startups that are doing well um, we're, are going to continue to do well. There, the, there's still money out there to, uh, to, to raise from venture capitalists, and they're going to continue to back the businesses that are doing the best. And so, um, yeah, it's not a great time uh, in the startup world if you're kind of a a struggling business, but if you've got a great idea and a great um, path forward, you're, there's money out there and, and room to grow. By the way, just speaking of businesses, we a short while ago visited with Stephen Esposito from Yellowstone Wealth Management. And he said that one area that he thinks is going to be successful, this isn't tech, this isn't startup, but it's, it's retail clothing. It might be athletic or leisure wear because so many people are losing weight, they need to get new wardrobes to accommodate their changing bodies. 847 texted in to say, hey, I lost 40 pounds on Mungero and Stephen is correct. I spend a lot of money happily on my new wardrobe. <laughs> so, so maybe that's a, a, a new path for, uh, uh, or an old path for some businesses out there. Uh, talk to me a little bit about IIT, which has landed money to expand its workforce. What's going on there? Yeah, the Illinois Institute of Technology um, was about was one of one of eighteen academic institutions to receive money from the U.S. National Science Foundation. They're going to receive about six million dollars over four years to support uh, their organization uh, in, in, in initiative called Tech Forward, which looks to develop a more diverse workforce uh, in Chicago's tech sector. So, great cause here. You know, they point out to the fact that. Black and Latino founders represent only about 6% of Chicago's uh, tech founders. So 
you know, really an opportunity here to get more money um, in the hands of uh, an organization that's going to, you know, kind of develop the next generation uh, of Chicago tech founders. And they want to make sure it's representative of the, of the diversity of Chicago overall. And so they're going to put that money into different programs and they're going to continue to put, you know, resources in the hands of black and brown founders in Chicago, which is great to see. Any last words of wisdom for you as we start the new year? Yeah, I think, you know, 2024 will be a year of, uh, you know, cautious optimism optimism for the tech sector. I think it was often marked by uh, quite a few layoffs. Uh, you know, even we saw that locally here uh, with companies like Cameo and, and others. And so I think, you know, 2024 will be a year of, you know, cautious optimism, some modest growth. I think some of the darker days are behind us, at least for the tech sector, and we're going to start to see a, a trend upward. So uh, definitely one to keep an eye on, and we'll certainly be doing that over at American Eno and Chicago Eno. Nice to talk to you, Jim. Thanks for your thoughts last year, and thanks for joining us again this year. Thanks, John. Jim Dalkey is the national editor at American Eno. You can click on the local version of that, chicagoeno.com. Let's click on Steve Grzanich. He's got more business news. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Electric vehicle maker Rivian missed expectations for quarterly deliveries, despite the company ramping up production during the past year. Bloomberg reports the company built 17,541 vehicles in the final three months of 2023 and delivered 13,972 of them. Analysts had expected more than 14,000 deliveries. Rivian has faced a number of challenges, including supply chain issues and slowing EV market growth. The company has a manufacturing facility in downstate Normal. It's planning a second facility for Georgia, but it won't be up and running until 2026. A new report says more than 50 Chicago businesses have expanded or relocated to Ireland. Abbott Labs, Horizon Therapeutics, Aon, and Illinois Toolworks are among the companies with an expanding presence in Ireland. The Chicago Tribune reports nearly 1,000 U.S. companies employ about 17,000 people there. Business leaders tout Ireland for a strong educational system and its connection to countries around the world. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Now the business of food, and now Steve Alexander. Yeah, well, Happy New Year, and I hate to start 2024 on a downer, but I will, after thanking the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. American farmers have closed the books on 2023. Overall, the USDA says income came down 21% from 2022, but... And it's a big but from USDA economist Seth Myers. But it came down from a level in 2022 that was record high. In fact, net cash income for producers last year came in at just under $158 billion. And here's another but. Still well above the average of the last couple decades. And an interesting fact here is also that the last three consecutive years of farm income are the highest three farm income years in my lifetime. Hmm. Okay, I'll ask. How old are you? I'm not as young as I like to think I am. How about that? Well, let the record show that farm income over the last three years was the highest it's been in 50 years. Okay, let's talk about hogs. For the pork industry, most of the past year... Profitability in swine hasn't been great. He says hog farmers have been trying to boost prices by cutting down on the number of pigs being born, or what's called farrowings. Which brings another but from USDA economist Seth Myers. The problem is, is pigs per litter jumped so much that it completely offset any of the attempts to actual cut supplies. So, is pigs per litter sustained? Was that a blip? Are we back on this 
aggressive trend of pigs per litter growth? <laughs> well, good questions from the guy who's supposed to be giving us answers. Hog producers do say they plan on cutting farrowings by 2% in the current quarter and 1% in the spring quarter. And maybe those efforts are working. The USDA is forecasting hog prices this year at an average of $60 a hundred. That's up $1.30 from last year, so no big changes should be expected in the cost of your ham or bacon. On the food calendar, it's National Cream Puff Day. <laughs> and if you're still in holiday eating mode, it's National Buffet Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Christiana Trapani is the owner and chief candle lover, it says, here at Door County Candle Company. I think this will be the third time we visit with Christiana to talk about how business is going in Door County and the special place some of those candles are going. Hi, Christiana. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Good. How was your Christmas season? Good. It was really nice, really busy, and um, it was nice uh, to catch up and to have a few days of rest. <laughs> so you took a couple of days off. I presume beforehand, though, is there a rush for candles like other items before Christmas? Yes. They're, um, right before Christmas, pretty much Black Friday to like December 22nd, there are a lot of candles to make and ship. <laughs> and so are you all still making them there in Door County? And how big is your business? Yes, yeah, so we make all of them right here in our shop. Uh, we're not very big. Um, we, we have 3,000 square feet. Just last year, we added 3,000 more square feet because we did not have room to store our supplies inside with um, how many Ukraine candles we were making. So we were storing our jars and wax outside. But now with our addition, we actually have space to store pallets, which is really, really cool for us. <laughs> so talk about the Ukraine Candle Project. What was that all about? So last year, um, in, or wow, two years ago now, I, I'm not used to that yet. So when um, Russia invaded Ukraine, my family is Ukrainian. I have family in Ukraine. I'm Ukrainian. So I wanted to jump into action and do whatever I could to help. We launched a Ukraine candle, and fast forward to today, we have raised a million dollars and counting for a thousand for Ukraine by donating all the profits from our Ukraine candle. And last year um, in winter, we we sent over 10,000 tin candles to Ukraine because um, the, the nonprofit we're supporting told us that they needed, the people in Ukraine, the, the people who are fighting needed light, and they needed a source of heat and light. And so we sprang into action sent over 10,000 tins to soldiers. So the candles are in tins. When your customers buy these candles, though, the proceeds go to help the people of Ukraine. But I presume some people want to keep the candle. Do they then send the candle on or do they keep the candle? Correct. So what we did, um, we it was a buy one, send one. Um, so when, when you buy a Ukraine candle, we sent a tin. Um, right now, we are back to donating profits, so just the monetary profits to DASM. Um, as they indicated right now, they that's kind of where it's needed. But we did receive a video from a soldier right after Christmas holding our tin candle and saying that the the candle is illuminating all of their bunkers and helping get rid of the smell of burning wood and mice, which was really um it was very impactful to see that video of our candle in the hands of a soldier in Ukraine. It was kind of a surreal moment for, for all of us. You said the smell of mice, as in mouses? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. He said that their 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 bunkers are full of just smells. He particularly said mice and burning wood. But he said the the vanilla scented tins because we <laughs> we put fragrance in it, and we never thought. You know, we we didn't think about that. We obviously we're we're used to the fragrance, but hearing from him what a beautiful aroma it was, we were pretty we were really touched to hear that, and we were happy that it's not only providing light but helping with a better smell. What else are you hearing from over there? We um, what I'm hearing. I just talked to my aunt the other day that it's still you know the war is still happening. Um, they're still scared, but they're still confident that they will win. Um, but they're still just asking my aunt is always just asks for prayers. And I, I do that in addition to continuing raising awareness with our Ukraine candle. But unfortunately she said, it's still, still like it was, they're still scared. She's still afraid to leave, but they're every day is a little bit more confidence that, you know, they will win. Yeah. Come February, it'll be two years right after the Olympics is when they waited to remember Putin was at the Olympics, and then right afterwards, the tanks rolled, and that war right. is, is still going on. Um, I presume you are also selling non-Ukraine candles as well, right? Yes. Yep. So we have um, we have our obviously Ukraine candle, our thank you Poland candle that goes to Ukraine, but we have um, fifty other candles that um, are, are various scents. And one thing we actually did mid last year is we. We changed our whole business model around. So now whenever anyone buys anything that we make, we donate a portion of all of our sales to different and various nonprofits. Um, so we, we, we um, because of the Ukraine candle, we transformed our whole business model to be uh, fully philanthropic. Christiana Trapiani, uh, pardon me, Christiana Trapani is the owner and chief candle lover, Door <laughs> County Candle Company. You click on Door County Candle to see what they got, doorcountycandle.com. Let's talk again in the new year, Christiana. Thanks for your time, and thanks Great. for doing Thank what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks.